Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is important. And on election day, we're going to recalibrate with Kathleen Fisher of uh, Bernstein. Kathy, it's a single-digit world, one-year trailing, S&P up 6%. If I'd bought the FTSE in dollars, it'd be negative 18% as well. Maybe on an election day, I have to recalibrate. What do I recalibrate to in equities, bonds, and cash? You know, we've been saying for some time that investors should expect mid-single-digit returns We're on there. stocks. That's We're what's there. new. You know, that's when you think of the past few years, we've had some great years. Last year was very, very strong across global equity markets. Mm-hmm. It's not surprising this year is mm-hmm. less good because we do think you're going to get roughly 6% compound returns on U.S. stocks over the next decade or so, and maybe 7-ish outside the U.S., um, which is one of the reasons we're really encouraging clients to stick with a non-U.S. allocation, maintain well, a global equity allocation because non-U.S. stocks are cheaper. That's right where I wanted to go, and we're beginning to hear a real percolation of get back in non-U.S. Is that Siemens of Germany, or is that a company I don't know in Cambodia? Which no. is it? It's both. Um, clearly, the, the problems that Europe has are well understood. Um, the problems emerging markets have are perhaps less well understood because they're not a monolithic group. Each country is very different, and they've pretty much been sold off in tandem. So I think the key thing is to look at companies that are located outside the U.S., understand what their business model is, who their customers are, and make a decision about the valuation of those companies independent of where they're located. But let's talk about where the customers are located themselves. I know where you're looking for the companies to be located. Where do you want the client base to be located of those companies? Do you want it to be a European story or an international story that gets the European valuation? So this is a the really important question is all of the trade um, discussions, the trade problems, the trade skirmishes are causing all of that to be less clear than normal, right? We would argue that in China, for example, you want to be in Chinese companies that are selling to Chinese local consumers because they are, of course, having the ability to spend more money on goods and services right there. Um, that is still true, um, but with the perception of China slowing down, a lot of those stocks have sold off as well. So there's a lot of um, idiosyncratic issues you have to look at in each situation, so it's not a monolithic issue. But in terms of multinationals, I would argue if you're thinking, if you're worried about a country in Europe that's not as robust as it might be, but there's a company that's a multinational selling yeah. to, com- company, to, to consumers all around the world, you can get discounted stocks um, that are very attractive. Kathy, so got to get to the top yeah. story of the day, the, yes. the midterm elections. There's a view that gridlock is good for markets historically. Is gridlock good for markets now? It will be, um, because people assume little change. um, But going back to what I said before, um, nothing in the elections is going to change the fact that we still have to deal with these trade issues and the fact that interest rates are rising and all these things will be uh, sources of volatility for stock markets. Um, But gridlock is the expectation and, and would probably be the best outcome for the election. Kathy Fisher, great to have you with us on Bloomberg Surveillance on an important day as the midterm results approach as Bernstein's head of wealth and investment strategies. What we're trying to do today on this election day is give you smart coverage from deeply experienced 
political types. One of those would be Douglas High. He, of course, is uh, someone with public service to the Republicans and particularly to President Bush, the younger, and, of course, with his work with the Republican National Committee. Uh, and now, and, and I should say with Eric Cantor uh, as well. He's out of Chapel Hill years ago. And, Doug, the reason I'm thrilled you're on is you have an encyclopedic knowledge of Iowa. What do the pundits get wrong about the changes of Iowa, of which you know every square acre? Well, Iowa is a, is a growing and changing state. It's a state with, a, with an economy that's doing um, better than the national <clears throat> average. Obviously, this, yeah. the whole country is doing pretty well right now. But Iowa has been um, at the leading edge of that right now. And, and because it's changing, we, we have a couple of um, races that, that um, people are looking at. David Young's congressional race, who's been in um, – um, Congress for a couple of years now is uh, arguably the most vulnerable race um, that any Republican okay. has right now is expected to be a pickup. And then another race that people weren't looking at as recently as, say, a month ago um, is Steve King, who, after yeah. controversy after controversy, um, has um, really put himself um, behind an eight ball. And I should say these are two very, you know, people tend to think of Iowa as being the same thing, but these are or a very homogeneous place. These are very right, right. Um, different congressional districts. Doug, your, your claim, Doug, is is somebody that could talk to all sides, all parties within the, the internecine battle of American politics. Is mm-hmm. the activities of Mr. King of Iowa, is it past its sell-by date? I mean, is that the past history and it's going to end with this election all of the um not hatred but the anger that we see out there oh i I think the anger that we've seen is is here to stay for a while unfortunately Mm. um but what we've seen with steve king is so many times he said so many outrageous things that it's given his democrat an opportunity here to to knock him off by surprise it is a very heavily republican sure and Republicans tend to vote Republican okay. regardless, just as Democrats tend to do. Um, he's northwestern um, Iowa, places like Sioux City and, and Emmitsburg. He still should win, uh, but he's going to have a close right. scare. And if Steve King loses, that means it's not going to be a good night for Democrats. It's going to be a great night for Democrats. On, on, on a broader basis, are the Republicans migrating over time? towards a Whig outcome? Are they becoming so narrow in their number of registered voters and their need to pull over disaffected Democrats and independents that they risk, I don't know what flavor of Whig in my history, but they, they, they risk 1840, 1845? We, we do. You know, we, we have, um, unfortunately, and I say as a Republican, we have repelled a lot of voters um, who are, are looking in, in different directions right now because of what they've seen coming from yeah. the Republican Party. And you know, that, that really speaks to what this entire election, at least on the House side, you know, yeah. is, is going to be. If you look at what President Trump has done over the past couple of days, uh, or weeks even, they've made a strategic decision that this is not about persuading anybody to vote Republican. It's about motivating Republicans to get to the poll. We're not trying to appeal to new voters here. We want our voters to get to the but poll. Don't that's need, but that's critical, Mr. High. Don't you need new voters to survive, yes. to live, to prosper? Yes. And How do you get right. them when you've, got, when you've got ads, for example, what we've seen in the last 24 hours, ripped off the network by a wide set of networks, I should point out. I mean, how do you go out and get marginal new voters? 
Yeah, I, I think the answer is is you don't. And, and Democrats aren't just appealing to new voters. I think very smartly they've appealed to get new candidates, better candidates, more experienced and differently experienced candidates. So you have female yeah. veterans who are running um, as Democrats right now. That is a prototype of a candidate that can appeal to a much broader uh, swath of voters than you know what we typically have seen from yeah. Republicans in the past and certainly this cycle. It's a problem for them. Doug, hi, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. Two quickest. Uh, uh, Douglas High, uh, with his work as a former RNC communications director and, of course, working closely with Eric Cantor. On this election day, it is good to speak to someone who has taken a different road in a time where all sorts of Americans um, uh, maybe separate uh, faith from the daily grind of Washington. Joe Lieberman has pushed against that, of course, a senator from Connecticut, uh, but far more his public service to the nation, a vice presidential candidate as well. Senator Lieberman, wonderful to have you with us Thank today. Thank you, Tim. I'm great uh, to be with you. Pim and I are going to jump into the election, but I must sure. ask you about Pittsburgh, and I want to ask you through the prism of your son. You, you know, your father was a liquor store owner. You went right. to Yale. Right. Your son wandered through New Haven as well, right? <laughs> he did, and he went to Green, he went to be a headmaster at Greenfield Hebrew Academy. Wow, Atlanta, right? you've, you've done some great. Background we always work. do our background yeah. at Bloomberg Surveillance in Atlanta. In right. Atlanta, what do you say to the kids in a Greenfield Hebrew Academy or any other Jewish school in this right. nation after what we just saw in Pittsburgh? Forget about the media frenzy and adults pressing it. What does your son, as a former headmaster there? What does he say to the kids? Yeah. So I'll, I'll say, I think my son Matt um, would say, and I, I certainly say, I would say to the kids, uh, believe in America. Um, uh, the Jewish people have never lived in a country outside of Israel where uh, we have had as much respect, opportunity, freedom, etc. And um, th this act, and uh, there have always been anti-Semites, but uh, we, we've gone through a period of uh, remarkable acceptance and openness in our country where the anti-Semites have really uh, felt they had to stay quiet. And look, I'm here I ran for a vice president, uh, thanks to Al Gore asking me to go on the ticket. There never was any anti-Semitism in that campaign. And uh, we did get uh, half a million more votes than the other ticket. So I'm not uh, relitigating the uh, Supreme Court decision. I'm just saying, what a, what a statement about the fairness of the American people. Now, there's an, been an uptick in anti-Semitic acts. There's still a minority. What happened in Pittsburgh and Squirrel Hill mm -hmm. at the synagogue was really the work of a lone wolf who was, uh, who was fed anti-Semitism, which he wanted Can over social media. So I'd say stay, to those kids, uh, Jewish kids, okay, stay alert, but don't, but get involved in America. It's it's the great. It really is the greatest country in the if world. If it is a lone wolf, and it, if it is a narrow segment of society, how do all of us reaffirm and push against that danger? Well, great question. I mean, I think in every way, and and I must say, it began in Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh. The reaction to of the of the non-Jewish neighbors uh, in Squirrel Hill, to the non of the non-Jewish elected officials, uh, was so, uh, to me, moving and genuine. Uh, uh, there was a man I never met him, Rich Fitzgerald, county executive in uh, uh, Squirrel Hill. He, he says, these are my neighbors, these are my friends. In other words, these aren't the Jews. <laughs> 
these are my neighbors, my mm -hmm. friends. So each of us has to do that, obviously, not just with Jews, but everybody else um, who is right. maybe a little different. And, you know, I always say if you're Jewish and you are Christian or Muslim and you believe in the Bible, you got to remember that over and over again it says, uh, never forget that, that you were strangers, meaning foreigners or immigrants or minority in the land of Egypt, yeah. and you better be nice to strangers who are around you today. Pim, are we broadcasting Egypt? I think we're live in Cairo right now. It's all across Digital the globe. Product. It's around the world. Uh, <laughs> okay, Sen good. Senator Lieberman, I'm wondering if you have any concrete advice or guidance for the new senators, because there will be some new senators based on today's right. election. What guidance would you give them? I know that when you entered the Senate, George Mitchell, I right. believe, told you to focus on one or two things. Yes, he did. And when you left the Senate, you had some words about bipartisanship, which ring true today. Well, it's true that, look, I'd, I'd say to the new senator, most important of all, because c Congress has really let down the American people because they really have put party and ideology and interest group ahead of, uh, of solving America's problems, ahead of the best interests of the country. And I would, I would really say and plead with new senators, don't let that happen. Uh, make so, I never introduced a piece of legislation that I cared about without finding a Republican co-sponsor because I knew if I did that, the odds were I'd never get it done. And uh, that's the way things generally have worked in Congress since the very beginning back in the uh, 18th century. So to me, that's the critical challenge for new senators. I, I, I'm co-chair of a group called No Labels. We're involved in this campaign. Everybody else seems to be talking about Republican, Democrat, red, blue, liberal, conservative. We're actually, we raised over $15 million and we're supporting Republicans and Democrats if they give us reason to believe they're gonna get into Congress and solve some problems instead of just screaming at each other. And hopefully they'll, they'll win today. Uh, Senator Lieberman, just quickly, the 17th Amendment to the Constitution uh, pertains to the popular election yeah. of senators. Yes. You think it would make any sense to have the senators elected by the state legislators so that the people who go to Washington specifically represent the interests of their states? Oh, interesting. I don't. Now, as you know... Um, uh, for us, an amazingly long time, right into the early years of the 20th century, about 100 years ago, a little more, uh, it was the state legislators that elected the senators. Now, that began, I think, because our founders, who were revolutionaries and, and uh, fought against the King of England, established a new country, a free country, they were still a bit, they were elitists. They were a bit worried about what the people would do if you let them go. So instead, they said that the state legislature, right. uh, which was likely to be the elite of the state, would choose senators. Uh, uh, that's not the no. way. We, that, we, we've got to let right. the people decide. Uh, very quickly here, uh, 1988, you won by less than 11,000 votes, eight-tenths of a percent Correct. against Mr. Weicker. Did you have your, did you have your acceptance speech already? Or, or was it, oh, I got to make this up fast. How'd that work that evening? Yeah, no, I'll tell you a, a quick story about that night. Um, so we wrote an acceptance speech and a concession speech. I pretty much did that every race I was yeah. in, including the ones that I was 
um, uh, favored heavily to win. But here's yeah. the story I want to yeah. tell you. The polls close at 8 o'clock. Yeah. Around 9 o'clock, my press secretary right. comes in and says, Peter Jennings will go live if you <laughs> declare victory now. What do you think? I said, I haven't okay. won. <laughs> we haven't won yet. Okay, Senator Lieberman, thank you so much. Great, Joseph great Lieberman to be with you. Of Connecticut, thank you so much. Worldwide, vote. This is Bloomberg. Polls open nicely across much of the nation and closing 6 p.m.-ish in Kentucky and parts of Indiana as well. It is good to catch up with the former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. This for the Democrat, Barack Obama. Austin Goolsby joins us from Chicago uh, this morning. Austin, you've done a lot of work in economics and internet and technology. You did a lot of work for Slate, sort of the hipper. You mean you're the hipper kind of guy. You know, you're in the groove. Is there a generational change today for the Democratic Party? Well, first of all, thanks for having me back, Tom. Uh, I think there's some, you can feel there is some generational change change taking place in the Democratic Party. I don't know how that plays out in 2020, but I think you, you're definitely seeing a lot of different types of candidates uh, for running, running for Congress, running for state reps. Um, yeah. As the higher up you go, to, and even for governor, as you start getting to the presidential candidates and the senators, maybe a little less. Right. Um, change. Yeah, and, and Pim, this goes back to the incredibly important internet commerce tax sensitivity and the generation yeah. gap. Goolsby. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court just <clears throat> upheld the state's version of net neutrality. But, but Austin, Goolsby, does the economy still determine election outcome? Doesn't seem like it. You know, that's kind of the puzzle. Uh, you would have thought that the sitting president, if the economy is doing this well at the midterm, that'd be all he'd talk about. The fact that he didn't might be because his mind is elsewhere, but it might be because the economy isn't what's leading people to vote. And, you know, the, the President Trump himself put it when he said, well, well we could talk about the economy, but, but that's kind of boring. <laughs> so... I, I, it seems like most of the older rules are off where where the how the economy was doing, how the income growth was in the last year um, is not the main determinant. Maybe that's a sign that the income growth for for regular people hasn't been as great as as you know what if I told you the unemployment rate was this low and I told you we were growing at a decent clip. <clears throat> In the old days, you probably would have said, well, people's incomes must be rising like crazy like they did at the end of the 90s, but they they kind of have not been. All right, but if that's the case, and let's just take that as a, 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 something that you posit, it, does that indicate then that the tone in Washington, in the Senate, and in the House will change? I don't necessarily mean that they're going to do anything bipartisan, but the focus, what they focus on is going to be different because if the focus is no longer on the economy to win votes, it's got to focus on something else. Yeah, you know, that's a nice theory, but it actually turns into a dark theory, uh, which is, I think it is going to focus on something else, but it's not going to be something fun and light. It's going to be nasty, uh, cultural battles and we have seen play out in the past 
as you run up to a presidential election. Mostly Washington doesn't get anything done, but they set up a series of show votes to try to embarrass and humiliate yeah. the other side. And I bet for sure they're going to do that. I mean, I mean, when I make jokes, uh, Austin, about your work on technology and, and the generation gap, but actually it's serious. Way back in the 90s, early Internet, you were one of the first people to say, OK, how do we use the Internet if we're old or young? Do you see a change in our consumption of political messages during an election? And I say this with a gentleman from Chicago uh, being pathbreaking on use of social media a few years back. I mean, is there a shift now in our consumption of social stuff for politics? Now, first of all, Tom, I appreciate that there's somebody who still remembered what I did back in the day. I'm going to be I'm gonna be an old man sitting at a bar. I'm going to be like, remember that paper? We're already I doing that. Yeah, I remember that paper I did. You can't have viewed 2016 election outcome and mm. the way it surprised everybody or the way it surprised pollsters and, and others and not recognize, whoa, something's going on with technology exactly. and elections that, that we never had before. So what's your two and, cents right now? Yeah, I look, I think that continues. The median, that's, that's a different way, in my view, a different way of saying the media environment's completely changing and we're catching up to that. And that's, that has happened before. First came in radio, then TV, then the cable, then the Internet. Now the social media, and it'll probably change two or three more times. But right. it takes you one to three election cycles to catch up to the new technologies. I'm hoping that voters will become increasingly sophisticated and skeptical <clears throat> of what they're seeing on social media and on the Internet. That certainly happened to TV ads that politicians ran. It certainly happened on cable. It certainly happened on the regular Internet. It kind of hasn't happened so far. We, you know, we're getting ourselves worked up into these memes, oftentimes, that are proved to be completely false. Um, I feel like within you know, one to two more cycles, people are going to be saying, oh, social media doesn't work. People aren't, aren't listening to that anymore. In one or two more cycles, do you think that we're going to be able to vote online? I still kind of feel like everybody's got the not unfounded fear that what if you woke I mean, they, they I mean because it's not as if the voting booth is all that secure these days. Now. I mean, think of all the things that your phone does that you're like, why, why, I can't get a signal here, what's happening? And then apply that to voting, I think it's still going to be some nervousness. Austin, tell me about turnout. I mean, uh, Mike Allen published today from another source, a good source, I should say, that under 30 turnout pre-election is 850,000 up to 2.3 million. Does a guy, a seasoned guy like you, do you just assume that's 94% Democrats? Uh, you know, my basic model of turnout is people turn out when they're pissed. And the Democrats are pissed, so there's going to be a lot of turnout. Now, th th that usually sparks the, and if you think the other people are all turning out, then you're going to turn out too. Yeah. Uh, I, it feels like there's a lot more close contests this time than in the normal midterm, 
where it's kind of the Politburo and 95% of the incumbents just um, get reelected. Uh, and we know close races leads to turnout, too. So I don't think yeah. those are all Democrats. It might be the yeah. early vote is more disproportionately Democrats, but I think a lot of early voters are are just regular voters. Uh, they just they don't want to go on a Tuesday, so they went on okay. a Monday. Austin, none of this matters. You're out of Milton Academy, the hockey combine of Milton <laughs> Academy. Are you slotted in to take over for Joel Quenville, who was fired really by the Blackhawks? That's a, that's a plus. Texas, I grew up in California, so I was there. They'd be like, "Oh, we're gonna go see the hockey game." I'd be like, uh, "Which side? Are they trying to get that in the net? What are they doing?" Yeah. So you're not on the short list to take over for Joel Quenville in Chicago. No, but I, but I, uh, I, I would be open to uh, if somebody was gonna give me a ticket. I would like that would to good. Blackhawks Maple Leafs would be a very good ticket, always yeah. with the Red Wings. Austin Goolsby, hockey aficionado. Thank you so much. He's a former chairman. Yeah, great talking to you guys again. President's Council of Economic Advisors. Seriously, Pim, you know, people go, Austin Goolsby, like, okay, what's the deal? And the deal is at an exceptionally young age, he did original work on, wait a minute, what is this thing? The internet. And you go, yeah, 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 except in 1997, 98, 99, it was truly first out of the box. You know, it's like, this thing doesn't matter. What do you think? Do you think in maybe two election cycles we'll have online voting? I don't think so because I think that the local prerogative and state prerogative will slow the whole process down. What I think is dumb are lengthy lines. It's 6 p.m. and the children are hungry and I got to get home. And the line is long, and will they keep the polls open? That seems to be happening a lot, coast to coast. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.